Hey, this is Andrew from the Talk To Me Doc podcast, and when I'm not helping my fellow early career physicians, I'm nerding out financial residency. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and very excited to bring today's guest on, Zach Prince, the CEO of BlockFi. We're going to be talking all about cryptocurrency and BlockFi, his company. They have $17 billion in assets now and just received funding for $3 billion valuation. So he is a big, big player in the space. And I think this is the way that I want to introduce cryptocurrency to all of you because I have received so many questions around cryptocurrency. Should you be buying Bitcoin or not? And I've really kicked the can down the road and not talking about this because this is something that is highly, highly, highly speculative. It moves, it is extremely volatile, and it is not for everyone. And this is going to be really interesting to hear from an insider's perspective on cryptocurrency. I'm going to share with you a little bit about my background and what I think about cryptocurrency and does it actually have a place in someone's portfolio or not. But before we do that, let's hear from today's sponsor who is Contract Diagnostics, and they're a firm 100% dedicated to physician contract reviews. They provide a service that all physician families will need at least one time in their careers, and honestly, most likely a few additional times as well. Now, I love this company. They have helped over 10,000 physicians understand not only what they're signing, but what the risks are that they're taking with their family. All contracts are reviewed by an in-house attorney, and presented in a super simplified way back to you using custom documentation, compensation data, which by the way is fantastic, and times outside of normal business hours, they're going to make it really easy for you to get your contract reviewed. All the packages are a flat price, which is fantastic again, so you know exactly what you're going to pay for up front. And resident and fellows can even make interest-free payments over time. And that is super unique, and I love that feature. So look them up at drpodcastnetwork.com slash contract diagnostics. That's C-O-N-T-R-A-C-T-D-I-A-G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S. Or call 888-574-5526. I absolutely love John and his team. They are fantastic. It is who we refer to all the time at Physician Wall Services, as well as on here on the Financial Residency Podcast. So check them out. The link is in the description of this podcast that you're listening to right now. All right. So before I bring Zach on, I want to just give this quick disclaimer because this is not specific financial planning, investment, insurance, or any other type of advice you can think of. I want you to do your own due diligence. I want you to be sure that you are doing the right things for your money and that you are not just blindly accepting what some random podcaster, blogger, YouTuber, or someone else is saying about it. Do not part yourself from your hard-earned money without doing that due diligence because as we talk about every subject, it's important, but specifically around Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, this is something that is evolving fast. It's moving quick. There's going to be tons of FOMO or fear of missing out in the mix But I think everyone should learn and understand what it is and make that decision for yourself. I am not completely against someone that owns Bitcoin. I don't think it's a massive deal if you're not betting the farm, so to speak, on it. One or 2% of your net worth or your investable assets is not going to break the bank. Look, if you put 1% of your net worth into something, let's say you're worth a million dollars, 1% is $10,000. And it goes from currently around fifty-five dollars to $60,000, depending on when you look at this, and it goes to zero, you still have 99% of your wealth. If it doubles, you now have double the amount of Bitcoin that the valuation is likely not going to move the needle a ton, but it is going to be there kind of like schmuck insurance. If the Federal Reserve and the governments and everyone ends up messing things up, and keeps printing more dollars, and we do have inflation, this is one type of investment that could benefit from that. I'm not saying it's the best investment or the only investment. It is one type of investment. If the currency it's, ends up having issues, this is one type of investment that could shelter you from those potential things that could occur. But again, it does not mean it's the only investment. So I'm really excited to bring on Zach from BlockFi to talk about cryptocurrency, what it is, how it works, and what an insider is actually seeing in the day-to-day of this. So 
sit back, enjoy, and let's bring Zach on the show. Zach, what's up, man? Welcome onto the show. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. I am super thrilled, and I hope everyone realizes how lucky we are to actually have you on the show. You are a huge name in the crypto space, and I think everyone is going to learn an absolute ton from, I think, an insider into the space. Some people are like, okay, he finally did a show on crypto. We're finally going to get some of the details, hear some of my thoughts, but I think this is going to be really fun to hear your thoughts on where we're at, where it's going, how it works. But I think we need to baby step this in. So let's maybe talk about what is Bitcoin and what is blockchain and how those things interrelate. Sure. So I approach the crypto space from a more traditional investor kind of point of view. And so usually when I describe Bitcoin and what's happening in the crypto ecosystem, I'm talking about it in hopefully more familiar ways and less hardcore technical ways. So when I'm describing Bitcoin to someone, let's say it's like my aunt or friend, I usually say it's a new asset that's built in a way to make it a store of value. And what people are using it for is very similar to what people have used gold for in the past as a store of value type investment asset, a hedge against economic uncertainty, that type of thing, except it's a digital gold or a digital store of value. And what's enabled Bitcoin and other assets like it to be created is blockchain technology, which you can basically think of as being a global digital peer-to-peer payment. And this global digital peer-to-peer payment network has some kind of breakthroughs in computer science incorporated into it that basically make it the only payment network that operates globally with no intermediaries or that can operate with no intermediaries. And so it's this completely new system powered by blockchain technology where you have an entire ecosystem built in that operates in a decentralized fashion. So there's no CEO of Bitcoin or company that is responsible for running and maintaining Bitcoin, but you have a bunch of different actors And the system facilitates both the creation and management of Bitcoin as an asset and the facilitation of payments across these networks, which is similar in terms of the kind of disruption and and novelty to the creation of the internet. So the internet was created and it made moving around information a lot faster and easier. And it created a bunch of new exciting applications that we all benefit from tremendously today. And Bitcoin and blockchain technology is the internet of value. So we're not just moving information and websites and communication on this network. We're moving digital store value and Bitcoin and a lot of other assets now, which we'll probably talk about more, but that's how I usually describe it to folks. Yeah. There's a thousand coins out there. I think we could get super in the weeds of what they're doing and how things are going to be traded and how other industries could be disrupted by blockchain technology. But staying on Bitcoin, you said it's decentralized, it's a network. And I think maybe just explaining a little bit further on the concept of miners and how people are rewarded for keeping the network secure, because I think that'll close the loop on how this kind of works. Yeah. So basically you have a concept in Bitcoin of mining and mining is something that folks use energy and now also specialized hardware devices. Think of them as kind of like routers or modems or something that are purpose-made for mining Bitcoin. And they run these all around the world and they keep basically the audited and verified ledger of Bitcoin transactions in a decentralized fashion, meaning anyone with enough capital and inclination can become a Bitcoin miner. You just need the hardware and you need electricity. And these miners are all over the globe, but concentrated around places with large GDPs like China and the US. And they are incentivized economically to conduct this mining activity in two ways. Number one, 
there are new Bitcoins created every day according to a predefined schedule that's hard-coded into the network. Currently, there are 900 new Bitcoin created every day, and these miners are contributing energy and the hardware and the computation to manage the ledger. And they're incentivized by receiving these new Bitcoins that are created and also from transaction fees that are charged to process transactions using the network. In those two ways, miners are incentivized. They're always competing with each other to try and contribute more power to the network to keep Bitcoin running. And the reason people say it's secure, the reason it is so secure is because these miners are everywhere. So you can't, as a single country, for example, say Bitcoin mining is outlawed and we're turning off Bitcoin. The only way you could do that is if you had an ability to cut off the power to miners all around the world and to turn off the internet for the citizens of your country. And some governments are able to do that, but in general, that's relatively unheard of in free countries and hard to do in countries that are less free unless the government has you know, just tremendous economic and, and technological power. So because it's so spread out and because it's not controlled by any single entity and because it also has so much computing power behind it now, the amount of computing power that goes into the Bitcoin network from all of these discrete mining operations is tremendous. I don't even know the latest stat, but I mean, it's the biggest computing network in the world by a long shot. And that is part of what makes it so secure. Yeah. And I'm thinking North Korea, how did that turn out by censorship and not allowing them to work? And now we're seeing India come out and say, oh, we're going to potentially ban it again for the 1400th time. Good luck. How do you do that for billions of people? It's just not possible. You bring up the concept though of energy and there is, I think, some information out there where Bitcoin is dirty because it takes so much energy consumption. And I've even seen like on CNBC, Kevin O'Leary's going out and saying, Hey, I don't want any dirty coins and equating it to blood diamonds. I don't even know how that's possible, but maybe you do. How does Bitcoin power through some of these narratives being told out there? I think that Bitcoin has a long history of battling through different narratives that are trying to cast doubt on its viability as a store of value asset or as a currency or as a technology platform. And now we're at energy and maybe some other things. It used to be it's a Ponzi scheme or it's a complete fraud or it's only used by bad guys. And so there'll always be something. I actually think that because of the incentive created to effectively use energy, because there's now like a clear cost to not using energy. If you could only connect Bitcoin mining to any unused energy, then you could monetize it and create value out of it. I think that the Bitcoin mining industry might lead to tremendous innovation in the energy sector. For example, a lot of the energy that we create in the US every year just gets completely wasted because we don't have an efficient mechanism for storing it long enough before we need to deliver it to the location where it would be used. And if you could more effectively capture and store this energy with Bitcoin being one of those ways, you could ultimately end up saving energy down the road. Additionally, because Bitcoin miners are generally looking for low cost energy, because it helps their economics if they're paying less for the energy that they're putting into their mining operation, Oftentimes, they're located in places where energy is cheap, but it's not close to a bunch of people. So think of a hydroelectric dam in the mountains of China or a wind farm in Siberia. It kind of incentivizes efficiency. And the last thing I would say is you never see folks say, Bitcoin uses so much energy compared to anything else that creates a lot of value for society. I mean, the Bitcoin network is now storing around a trillion dollars of value for users of the network. And when people are saying Bitcoin uses a lot of energy, they're not saying Bitcoin uses more energy than the traditional banking system or other major currency systems or than the gold industry. It's always this kind of, it uses a lot of energy. Well, of course it uses a material amount of energy. It's storing a trillion dollars worth of value for 
tens of millions of people around the world and facilitating a free, decentralized global payment network, of course, it requires energy. As a global society, migrate towards cleaner sources of energy and renewable energy. I think Bitcoin will be a part of that transition, and it will be a part of that transition that probably helps accelerate it and make it more efficient. Yeah, I think Elon Musk is proving that we have an energy issue and they're trying with auto bidder and their mega batteries working with actual like power plants and trying to do it. It's interesting to see even if Bitcoin fails, it gave us blockchain, which is going to, I think, revolutionize a lot of different industries. We're already seeing it with GameStop and Robinhood. They kind of proved we have an issue with the settlement of trades, right? The fact that it goes to clearing and takes three days to settle trade, whereas maybe the blockchain at some point, probably within a decade, might be settled and stocks might be settled on blockchain technology and have instant liquidity and not actually have this multi-day. It used to be five. Now I think it's down to two-ish days for clearing. So it's interesting that it's already brought new technology, which is going to impact the world, regardless of the outcome of Bitcoin. I'm in the middle here. I see there's like very polarizing parts of the community. There's the community that's going to the moon. It used to be in 2017, it was like, F the government, this is going to overthrow the world. And now it's come to this like store of value gold concept. And then you've got the other side that's like, this is Beanie Babies. It's a fad. You're going to lose all your money. It's going to implode. Obviously, we know with BlockFi, which we'll talk about in a second, I know what side you're on with your business and all that, but how do you have a logical discussion with someone that says, this is going to implode, this is going to zero, whereas you're in the camp of, this is a new asset class, it's good for potentially diversification. How does that conversation exist? I think in addition to folks getting increasingly educated on Bitcoin throughout the last few years, and as a result, I think that a lot more smart people in positions of power or influence in either the government or financial industries have changed their tone around Bitcoin and in some cases started buying it within their asset management business or started building infrastructure to enable their clients to build it in other areas of finance. I think we've also become a lot more quantitative and data-driven in terms of the conversation. I agree with you, like back in 2017 and certainly before 2017, you would often get into this very philosophical debate. And some of the early adopters in the crypto world did hold a belief that Bitcoin was going to tear down every other currency, including the US dollar. And it was a very kind of like extreme view. And on the one hand, that extreme view and the community of folks that own Bitcoin that hold those views is in some ways an asset to Bitcoin because it's almost like a religious belief. There's nothing that could happen to change these folks' minds, but it's not the most welcoming conversation to have for your average investor who's not thinking about where money comes from or finance 24-7. And so now I think the conversation has become a lot more data-driven, a lot more rational. And what you're hearing folks from the industry, and certainly a lot of what we talk about at BlockFi say is things like, well, regardless of what your view on Bitcoin and what will happen over the next decade may be, you can't argue with the fact that over the last decade, Bitcoin has returned north of 100% per year on average to someone who's held the asset. Additionally, If you model out a traditional 60-40 portfolio plus a one, two, three, five, maybe 10% if you're feeling particularly aggressive allocation to Bitcoin, you can see very clearly that not only do your returns improve, but your overall volatility is reduced and your sharp ratio improves as well. Because yes, it's correlated at times, but oftentimes Bitcoin is relatively uncorrelated with traditional assets that folks invest in like stocks and bonds. And so I think that's become a lot more of the conversation now is that it doesn't have to be philosophical. Let's be data-driven just like we are any other time we're making an investment decision. Like past performance isn't indicative of future results, but it does give us a feel for the characteristics 
of an asset class or a specific asset. And when you look at Bitcoin from that lens, I mean, there's not much like it. It's this unique kind of hybrid between a store of value, uncorrelated hedge type asset and a high growth venture capital like network effect driven asset. And those two things together isn't something that I've ever necessarily seen and something that I've personally invested in. It's really exciting. And if you just remove the philosophy from the conversation, like we used to show people in the early days of BlockFi, a chart, like a zoomed out chart of something. We say, what stock do you think this is? (laughs) And people would say Amazon or Netflix or whatever. And we're like, it's Bitcoin. (laughs) And, you know, would you want to buy it? Yes. Well, what if I told you it was Bitcoin? Oh, I don't know. (laughs) So (laughs) Immediately puts them off. I'm not too certain. Well, I mean, as someone in the world of finance who lives and sleeps and breathes and dies by this stuff, I have a friend who is really into Bitcoin. I think he mined like 42 or 47 of them. And then he's put it in and we'll talk about like cold storage and he's never selling it. And I remember this conversation in 2012, we had lunch. It was in October. And I specifically remember because he tells me all the time and it was, I had $5,000 to invest. The idea was I've got my normal things. I'm saving in my retirement accounts, doing all that stuff. And this was something I wanted to spend up to 5k on something that was my lottery pick. And I still have this. I've talked about on the show a ton where I'll, I'll pick an individual stock or two and and cap my position at 5k, like nothing crazy. And he made every pitch on the book of Bitcoin. And I'm like, this sounds one, like a cult. It sounds terrible. There's no infrastructure. You're absolutely batshit crazy, to be honest, (laughs) and I'm not doing it. And he reminds me now in million dollar increments, how much that would be worth. So now I'm getting 14, 50, he just sends 14 as the message. So it, it ends up being a little sore of a subject, but to be honest, there wasn't infrastructure in place. It looked like a horrible investment and I don't even want to call it investment. It was beyond speculative at that point. And I think that as we've seen more institutions come in, this has been really interesting from a financial nerd perspective of how I look at things when Visa's stepping up and saying, hey, look, we're going to make this across all of our millions of payment providers that we're going to use PayPal's doing this, Square's doing this. You've got three major, major institutions that facilitate the movement of money across the globe now interested I absolutely hate JP Morgan, but you know, they come out and say, Hey, this is the worst thing ever. By the way, we're secretly buying this for our own high net worth individuals and Morgan Stanley. I mean, you name it, Tesla's coming out with over a billion dollars. What are you seeing as an insider say with the corporations, institutional money? Cause this feels weird to me that like retail is ahead of those institutions. And I know the market cap wasn't there yet. And you mentioned it's you know, over a trillion now. What are you seeing from an institutional side? Because that's something that none of us listening would have any exposure to. Yeah. I mean, first off, I think you bring up a really cool point about crypto, which is that a lot of times institutions beat retail investors to the punch for whatever new financial thing may be coming out or investment opportunity may be coming out. And they hire net worth folks and institutional investors typically have much better access to interesting opportunities in the investment world. And that's completely not true for cryptocurrency. Retail was there first and had opportunities before institutions were able to get in. But what we see now is the adoption is very real. It's continued to grow on the retail side for a number of reasons, but it's also grown tremendously. I would say in two kind of discrete waves on the institutional side. So the first wave started at the end of 2017 when the CFTC staked its claim over Bitcoin and declared it as a commodity for the purposes of how it'll be treated within US financial markets and launched Bitcoin futures on the CME. That happened in December of 2017. That enabled a whole slew of market making and proprietary trading firms and hedge funds to come into the Bitcoin market. About a year ago now, coming out of COVID, which I think was really important time in the evolution of how investors view Bitcoin, folks like Paul Tudor Jones and others said, we're buying. And they released reports discussing why they were buying. And then you have Michael Saylor and you mentioned Tesla. And for every one of these firms that comes out and 
says on CNBC that they're buying it or writes a research report that they share with their investors detailing why they're buying it. There are like 50 behind them who are much more secretive and less of public figures than that, that are also doing it. And it's very, very real. It's still also very, very early. It's hard to wrap your head around if you don't work in the financial services industry, just how much money is sloshing around and being managed by different types of market participants, whether it's banks or insurance firms or asset management firms or family offices or sovereign wealth funds, or the list kind of goes hedge funds or market making firms. I mean, there's such a large and robust and liquid kind of financial market out there. And Bitcoin is still incredibly small, even at a trillion which to anyone who's been following the market feels huge because a year ago it was a hundred billion, <laughs> but these numbers are already big and crazy to think about. Right. But a trillion is still really small in the context of gold is 10 trillion. All the equities in the world is North of a hundred trillion. All the bonds in the world is North of 300 trillion. All the real estate I think is more than that. All the derivatives that financial companies have exposure to is more than that. It could still be very early. And that's one of the really exciting things. Bitcoin, in my mind, coming out of COVID, I think it's become really clear to everyone that everything digital has some kind of embedded advantages to its physical analog counterpart. And if Bitcoin is just digital gold, which I think it's more than that, but if it's just digital gold, surely gold at a $10 trillion market cap and Bitcoin at a $1 trillion market cap, it should be headed that direction and maybe even become bigger over time. And so that's just one part of it. But just looking at that part, you can make a very reasonable case that we have a five or a 10x still to go. And then if you look at institutional asset flows, it feels like we're still incredibly early, despite having a few folks come out and say they're buying it. Yeah, we've seen with the talking heads on CNBC going, oh my gosh, it's up X amount or it's doing this. But I think relating it to market cap and size, a trillion dollars is a lot of money. But perspective, I think we're making up numbers as we go with derivatives in the quadrillions at this point. But if we think about, okay, Bitcoin's at a trillion. They just signed a stimulus bill for 1.9 trillion, double of Bitcoin's entire market. Just one. We've printed, and I say that loosely printed, as the Federal Reserve since January of 2020, almost $10 trillion has been added in liquidity. And we're talking another $3 trillion in an infrastructure bill coming by Biden at some point this year. All about perspective. It's the new hot thing. It's been around 12 years. I still believe it didn't have any infrastructure until very recently. And that's what's interesting about it. So as we think about buying Bitcoin now, I think this will be a really important distinction really quick to make is that, yes, it's a digital coin, but it's not like you can print a billion of these. There's 21 million in total, and there's about 18 or so million that are in existence currently. So it's not like it can be printed more, whereas gold can actually be mined every year and they're finding new and it is scarce, but it has been quote unquote money for 5,000 years. So it's obviously got some history compared to 12 for Bitcoin, but that's why if anyone's thinking you can't print more of this, that's, I think, why the narrative has changed in that. But if someone wanted to buy, and I think now we can talk about BlockFi and what you guys are doing and how this works, because like I stated in the intro here, but I use BlockFi. I love what you guys are doing. I was beyond excited that you agreed to come on and talk to us about Bitcoin and crypto and really give a expert inside point of view that I really can't give. But I'm very excited to dig in. So if someone is buying Bitcoin, how does that exist? And maybe talk about like hot wallet versus cold storage. There's a lot of great options in terms of buying Bitcoin, where you can do it, how you can do it. And I would say they fall into a few different categories. You have cryptocurrency focused companies like Coinbase and Gemini and BlockFi and others. You have fintech companies who have made Bitcoin available on their platform like PayPal and Square and Robinhood. And then you have vehicles that you can access in some brokerage accounts where they've packaged up Bitcoin in, in security form. And the largest and most popular is the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, ticker GBTC. But there's also other products there. There's an Osprey Bitcoin Trust. 
If you have a brokerage that lets you trade Canadian securities, there are ETFs that have recently been approved in, in Canada. You can use any one of those mechanisms to get exposure to Bitcoin. The difference between hot storage and, and cold storage, I would say, starts with this concept of, are you holding the Bitcoin yourself or are you working with a third party to manage that for you? And maybe the traditional analogy is, are you buying a gold bar and putting it in a safe at your house? Or are you buying the GLD ETF? Or are you buying a gold bar that sits on the shelf in the secure storage room of your bank? And Bitcoin has very similar options. So you could buy the GLD, which would be like buying GBTC. You could buy gold that sits somewhere on a shelf, which would be like buying it at Coinbase or Square. Or if you buy it at one of the crypto native companies, they will let you buy the Bitcoin on their platform and then send it off of their platform. And once you send it off of their platform, you could send it to a self-custody wallet. Once you get into that self-custody wallet world, there are a number of options you can use a hot wallet or a cold wallet. And the difference between a hot wallet and a cold wallet is basically whether or not it's connected to the internet. So like a hot wallet would be a piece of software that's running on your computer all the time. And obviously your computer is connected to the internet or the keys to the wallet are stored in the cloud. A cold wallet, which is kept offline, the most popular come from a company called Trezor. And it looks like a little USB stick. And basically this USB stick holds the string of characters, which is the private key to your Bitcoin wallet. And if it's not plugged into a computer, it's not connected to the internet at all. So the only way someone could get their hands on it is if they both got your USB stick and had the ability in terms of knowing your passwords or recovery phrases to unlock your USB stick. And I think all of those options are great. And it's just a question of what fits best within your kind of personal style. I personally tried cold storage and using that hardware wallet solution that caused me to lose sleep at night because that's just not a good fit with my personality. I don't like needing to keep track of and having full responsibility over massive amounts of money, like in my house or on my person or in my brain or whatever. I'm much more comfortable working with a third party where, you know, if I forgot my password or get a new laptop or whatever, I know that there's a service and you know, apparatus for me to get access to it because it's just held in my name. But for other folks, that might not be the case. And one of the cool things about Bitcoin is that you do have this self-custody option in addition to the options of working with third parties. And then where companies like BlockFi come in is that we've taken this basic ability to buy Bitcoin and added on to it a little bit. So with BlockFi, you can create an account and you can buy Bitcoin, but you can also earn interest on your Bitcoin and you can get a loan secured by the value of your Bitcoin if you want to access liquidity without selling it. Pretty soon in the second quarter of this year, we'll have a credit card where you're spending dollars, but you earn Bitcoin rewards instead of airline miles or regular cash back. And those Bitcoin rewards will flow directly into your BlockFi account where you can earn interest on it or sell it or get a loan secured by it. And so we're, we're a incremental financial services layer above and beyond the basic notion of being able to buy and hold Bitcoin. And that's, I think, what got me interested. It's hilarious. I had opened an account with SoFi back a few years ago because a client said, hey, look, I'm thinking about doing this. How does it? And I was like, honestly, I didn't even know SoFi had a money account and whatever. So I log in because I'm a guinea pig. I like to test things. So my first crypto purchase was like in 2018 when SoFi gave me $25 to just buy crypto. And I was like, all right, I'll try it out. It was very simple. Totally forgot I even owned it, to be honest. And then they did some other special in 2019 and I went and put a little bit more in. And then I just kind of left in and was like, whatever, it's, it's a couple hundred bucks, not a big deal. And then as I studied more and learned more about it, because I love diversification, I think it could present a very small percentage of someone's portfolio could be this one, two, 
depending on their comfort level. But I look at it as when I was doing that, I had no idea what I was doing, what I was buying. And I think outside of what people have been looking at and doing some studies that most people don't understand Bitcoin or blockchain and how this works. So I think this has been extremely helpful as we're talking through this. But what got me interested with BlockFi was two things. One is, and I want to talk about stable coins in a, in a little bit, the idea that you can earn interest on your Bitcoin. That just blows my mind. And then the idea that you can purchase these stable coins and earn even more interest when banks are paying literally nothing, maybe even at some point going negative like they are going to probably do in England. But you earn a really good healthy percentage now, and we know it's not FDIC insured. But tell me, how does interest work on Bitcoin and kind of the process that you guys work from. And then we'll go in and talk maybe some of the other questions that I've come through to me with crypto. And I've messaged back and said, Hey, we've got Zach coming on, but talk about interest and how does that work behind the scenes? Look, when you're using BlockFi, it's really simple. It works the same way a savings account works. You hold assets in an account, you log into it, you see your balance, you see your accrued interest every month, your balance grows based on you know how much interest you earned in that month. And currently folks earn 6% on Bitcoin and 8.6% uh, on stable coins in terms of the annual yield in a BlockFi interest account. The reason we're able to pay these yields is because what we do is we lend a portion of the assets that are held in BlockFi interest accounts on the dollar side, we lend to both our retail clients and to institutional borrowers. And on the Bitcoin side, we lend exclusively to institutional borrowers. The lending that we do to institutional borrowers is a mix of securities lending and prime brokerage financing. We touched on earlier that first wave of institutional adoption really started to happen in December of 2017 when Bitcoin futures got launched. And so if you're a market making firm or a hedge fund and you want to start getting active in the crypto market, one thing you might do is want to go long or short Bitcoin. And if you just want to go short Bitcoin, you need to be able to borrow Bitcoin and sell it to have a short position. Another thing you might want to do is market making activities or arbitrage opportunities. And these exist in spades in the crypto market because it's still a nascent market. Liquidity is fragmented. It's global. So there's not the same kind of connectivity and infrastructure in crypto that there is in traditional equities, for example. And as a result, folks who make a living selling things for a dollar and buying them back for 99 cents, they do great in the cryptocurrency market, but they have a constant need to borrow assets, either because for one leg of a certain arbitrage trade, they need to have an ability to borrow or because they need inventory in the form of capital that they can place at the different trading venues to conduct their market making activities or because they want to express a short view. And so BlockFi is kind of like a prime broker. So we have a retail facing side of our platform and then we have an institutional facing side of our platform. And on the institutional side, we're effectively a prime broker to firms like Susquehanna, Acuna Capital, Jane Street and, and others who are actively trading the cryptocurrency market, but they can't finance their cryptocurrency market activity with their traditional banking relationships. Because JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, they don't offer their prime brokerage services for the crypto market, even though they love Susquehanna as a client. And so BlockFi kind of fills that role in the marketplace. And someone's holding Bitcoin in a BlockFi interest account, BlockFi is taking a portion of that Bitcoin, lending it to institutional firms. They're generally posting collateral back to us. And so we have a risk management system that monitors loan to value ratios. And if the prices are moving around, it issues margin calls and liquidations to ensure that we're not you know, underwater or losing money. And we've never lost a penny throughout any of our lending activities since we made our first loan in January of 2018. And obviously the crypto market has been volatile a number of times since then. That's how it works. We offer our clients an interest rate. We lend it out. We charge a bit more than what we're paying our clients and we keep the difference. Yeah. You facilitate, there's a spread there that for your issue, your hard work, your risk management, all of that, that goes into that. So you're able to pay out interest and kind of all parties win. You mentioned you started in like January of 18. I know that in March of 2020 crypto, like Bitcoin specifically, how did that work with you guys when the market actually, I think the correct term here would be plummeted. 
within that much. And I think it's also good for everyone to understand crypto just doesn't go straight up. There's insane amounts of volatility, like losing half of your money in 24, 48 hours when COVID kind of hit. But how did that work behind the scenes? There's parts of our risk management, which are really easy to understand at the individual loan level. If someone's loan to value ratio gets out of whack, you should margin call liquidation. There's also a lot of stuff that we do at the portfolio level in terms of hedging and risk management. There's a lot of infrastructure that we've built up through learnings that we've had over the years in terms of client communication. That day, March 11th, Bitcoin peaked to trough in a single 24-hour window was down 50%. The platform was incredibly active. We weren't sleeping a lot that night. Could imagine. <laughs> uh, because the market was very active and we needed to be there for our clients and, and crypto doesn't sleep. It operates 24-7. But I would say there were a couple things where we really stood out and it ended up being a very valuable time for BlockFi's business and for a lot of our clients. We were the only institutional crypto lender that was open for business on March 12th and actively making new loans for our retail clients and for our institutional clients. We were also, to my knowledge, the only firm that made exceptions to some of the hard-coded rules around our loans where we felt like it was the right thing to do for our clients. And I'll give you an example. Let's say we have a client on the retail side of our platform. They borrowed dollars secured by their Bitcoin. The price of Bitcoin was going down. They sent us more Bitcoin. But one of the things that happened on days like March 11th of last year is that a lot of people are trying to move Bitcoin around. The network gets a little congested. And if you're not familiar with how these things work, you might just send a normal Bitcoin transaction, not realizing that's not going to go through quickly because the fees go up because everyone's competing to get their transaction actually processed. And so you actually need to input a higher fee to get your transaction processed faster on days like that. And you know they sent us Bitcoin, but we didn't actually get it until let's say 16 hours later. <laughs> and one way you could handle that is you could say, ah, you know what? Price dropped. You didn't get us the Bitcoin in time. We sold your Bitcoin. And that's what our risk management system did. But we would look at that the next day and we did decide in certain scenarios that we would spend a little bit of BlockFi's capital in the interest of doing the right thing by some of our customers who, you know, honestly, to no fault of their own or due to no bad intentions on their part, experience some kind of discomfort on the margin because of how things went down. And we think of ourselves as building a business where we want to have relationships with our clients for the next... 10, 20, 30 years. Those two things still being open on the 12th and the way we handled it with our clients, I think were unique. That's smart. You guys played the long game and looked at it from a relationship standpoint versus a ones and zeros and become traditional banking at that point. And I think probably lose some credit within the community to do that. Before we finish out here, there was a few little quick questions that kind of came in that I think we've addressed a few of them around security and around if bad things were to happen to BlockFi, like if you were to go bankrupt, right? What maybe protection does someone have? Because maybe they're thinking, hey, look, I want to go check out BlockFi, which they can do at financialresidency.com slash BF. But if they look at this and say, okay, I'm going to put some in, but what if they go bankrupt? Like, how does that last little piece work out? Yeah, first off, we're very well capitalized. So, you know, about a week ago, we announced that uh, we closed uh, a $350 million Series D round that valued the company at $3 billion. We're actively working on becoming a publicly traded company. And then our financials will be transparent and updated quarterly. And that'll happen as, as quickly as we can do it. I would say, first off, the disclaimer is this is not an FDIC insured bank account. You should definitely think about this as analogous to maybe like a private credit type investment opportunity. And within that context, this is a private credit opportunity that historically has performed perfectly, where your capital as a lender into this system is protected by BlockFi's equity. So like structurally, we would have to go bankrupt before any of our clients could lose money. And the gravity of situation that would need to happen to cause us to go bankrupt based on how well capitalized we are today, in my opinion, is like a insane black swan. So it's either like Bitcoin went to zero or the entire traditional financial system collapsed. I mean, it's something that would have to be magnitudes worse 
than what we experienced uh, a year ago. The entire traditional finance thing, this is the last thing that they need to worry about. We've got bigger problems, right? We have a lot bigger problems as a world. I can't anticipate something, especially if you've already had a 50% drawdown and you guys were still lending and things were going that way. Thank you so much for having me. If anyone wants to get in touch with me, I'm very active on Twitter. My handle is at BlockFiZach. Our website is BlockFi.com. That's good. I think when you guys are going public, it would probably be another fun time to do that after the craziness subsides. But thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. I know that everyone's going to get a ton of value and they can check you guys out. FinancialResidency.com slash BF. All right, so it's time for one of our new favorite segments, the financial malpractice segment. And I've got Kelly on, who's a tax manager with us at Physician Tax Advisors. Kelly, welcome onto the show for the first time. Hi, thanks. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it'll be super fun. So maybe not so much fun when you tell us the next story that you have for financial malpractice, but what do you have for us with respects to taxes that someone has committed some potential financial malpractice? Sure. So... This story is actually not one that I personally handled, but it's definitely going to provide kind of a shock factor and a good learning experience for everyone. In this story, there was a married couple. They were legally married in the United States. They went to their tax preparer to have their taxes prepared, and they asked for them to file two separate returns. The husband was going to file head of household and claim the children. The wife was going to be filed as single. The preparer advised them, as she should have, that this was not legally acceptable when you are married and they were living in the same household. So living in the same household for the entire year and married, they only had two options. They could file jointly or they could file married filing separately. However, the taxpayer did not agree with this advice, decided to go out and prepare his own returns. He used these incorrect and unlawful filing statuses. Of course, not surprisingly, their returns got selected for audit. During the audit, the husband was less than cooperative in providing the required documentation. And so this case actually ended up going to court. In court, the husband was found guilty of both tax fraud because he knowingly filed his returns incorrectly. And I guess there's another kind of crime against not cooperating with an IRS audit. His sentence for these crimes was five years in jail. Whoa. Yes. That is crazy. Now, we all know tax fraud is bad, right? That's why when we talk to everyone in our community, when they're reaching out, potentially work with us on the tax side, it's really easy to say, like, we're going to do what's legally right. We're going to not play in any of the gray areas, but we don't want to have you pay any extra money than you have to. But we don't also want to be committing tax fraud. So thankfully, you are not the preparer on this one. Good disclaimer up in the beginning. So for those that are not trying to commit tax fraud, but could accidentally make some mistakes, but what could we learn from this? Because people aren't going to generally go out and say, I'm going to commit tax fraud today, but what can we learn from this story? Right. So definitely, I think some of the big takeaways are if you have a educated tax preparer that is providing you with advice, to heed to that advice somewhat. If you don't have a tax preparer, please go out and at least educate yourself. Find the appropriate filing status for your certain situation. You can find the information on the IRS website if you need to, but listening to your tax preparer or educating yourself. And I think the other great big takeaway from this is knowing that if you are knowingly committing tax fraud, it can come with a hefty sentence that could cost you your freedom. And I'd say the last piece would be don't piss off the IRS agent. That's probably a good one to start with as well. Yeah, I I did not know that portion about not cooperating with an audit. So yes, definitely. I mean, it makes sense. Otherwise, no one's excited to talk to you ever. No, they're not. You're right. Well, Kelly, thanks so much for coming on. We appreciate you and everything that you're doing at Physician Tax Advisors, as well as today's financial malpractice. Yes, thanks for having me. All right. Well, hopefully this was helpful for all of you to understand a little bit more about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and how things are moving and working within that industry. This is something that you're going to likely hear a ton about. And really, it depends on what side of the fence you're on. I'm curious, like you can shoot me an email, Ryan at financialresidency.com. You can tag me on Twitter at Physician Wealth or message me in our group or in our community, which you can find at financialresidency.com slash community. 
If you are interested in purchasing cryptocurrency and you do want to go through BlockFi, you can check them out, financialresidency.com slash BF. I think you get a little something for signing up using that link. But again, this is not specific investment advice. This is something that is unique to you. I own a very tiny sliver of it just to get some exposure. And I've been researching and doing all the nerdy things for actually several years when it actually started exploding in 2017. I never bought any of that, but for several years, I've been looking at it and they're calling it a new asset class. It's an interesting asset class. I think it could provide diversification, but again, in my case, I think in a very tiny sliver, it's fun to look at and to monitor and watch, but there is so much volatility and so much risk involved with this that I want you guys to all be careful. Please do your due diligence. It's an undeveloped industry. There's a lot of potential scams out there with people talking about sending Bitcoin and getting Bitcoin back and all sorts of things. Just, I want you to be careful. I wanted to bring this up. I wanted to have an expert on the show to talk through this because this is something that I don't nerd out all day, every day on. That is usually about disability insurance and budgeting and cash flow and stocks and bonds and all sorts of stuff that I, in traditional finance that I look at, but this is another tool in the toolbox, so to speak. Please do not bet the farm on this. Please do not go completely deep into this and have a multi-digit percentage of your net worth in it. I don't think that would be uh, exactly wise for you to blindly kind of walk into these things, but it's so polarizing and it's something that so many of you have had questions on that I wanted to bring Zach on. Hopefully you found it beneficial. Lots of stuff coming in the community. Really excited to be working in the next quarter on a lot of these new things, new projects that are coming out, live streams that are going to be taking place, new different types of shows. I mean, so many cool things are coming. Can't wait. If you want to make sure you're on our email list to be some of the first that are notified, you can do that by going to financialresidency.com slash subscribe. And before we end, I want to make sure that we touch on today's sponsor, Contract Diagnostics. And this is a company that specializes in contract reviews. And specialization is something that I think we can all appreciate here. So again, when you or your family, you have contract needs, highly recommend that you give them a call. They're going to help you understand your contract and make sure it lines up with your interests and protect the assets that you covet most, your time and your family. So find them at drpodcastnetwork.com slash contract diagnostics or call 888-574-5526. I can't recommend John and his team enough. They are just such fantastic people. They do such a great job. I know they'll be able to help you out with your contract needs. All right, Wyatt, take it away, bud. And let's hear that ever important disclaimer. Cheers. This is for entertainment purposes only. Do not take this as investment advice. My dad is only a fiduciary for his clients. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.